talking about comics. God and comics. God and comics. If you love God and you love comics, if you love comics and you think that they're the best, listen to these three priests talk about You're listening to God and Comics, the only show that makes Pariah cry tears of joy. That's a deep cut, ladies and gentlemen. Look it up. On today's show, we talk about how disabled characters have been portrayed in comics and how that does or does not match the way we're called to think about disability and disabled persons as Christians. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michikin. I am the chaplain at St. John the 23rd College Preparatory uh, high School in Katy, Texas. On the line with me today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I am the rector of St. George's Episcopal Church in Schenectady, New York. And also on the line is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I am the rector of Church of the Messiah Episcopal Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Wonderful. Good to see you guys. So let's get right into it. Uh, take it away with our recommendation. Here is Father Matt. Uh, I have a, a book to recommend this this time around. That is, it came out recently, and it's not it's not finished. Um, and it's it's published by Dark Horse Comics, and it's called Skull Digger and Skeleton Boy, um, and the writer is Jeff Lemire. And the artist is, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but I think it's Tonsi Zonjic, um, T-O-N-C-I-Z-O-N-J-I-C. Tonsi Zonjic, I think is how you would say that. Um, but th this is, um, it's another miniseries uh, that is a spinoff of uh, Jeff Lemire's critically acclaimed Black Hammer series. Um, and there's been a series of, uh, you know, limited series that have spun off from that. And this is a, it's another one. It takes place in that Black Hammer universe. It, it only ran for three issues so far, um, three or four issues. And I, I believe the last one came out in, in February. And then the coronavirus uh, happened and... Um, and, and Dark Horse hasn't picked it back up quite yet, so I'm, I'd be devastated if this wouldn't, if it's going to continue. And, and I very much hope that it, it will. It's, it's, it seemed to be pretty popular and pretty uh, critically acclaimed. But um, you, it is a spinoff of Black Hammer, but you don't need to know anything about um, the Black Hammer books. Uh, to jump into this one. It's sort of its own self-contained story. It just takes place in that universe. Um, I recommended Black Hammer a while back, a couple seasons ago maybe. Um, but um, so the Black Hammer universe is sort of like um, 
Well, it's kind of like Jeff Lemire's uh, um, attempt to do an homage to various existing comic books. So, um, you know, the, the characters in Black Hammer are very thinly veiled of uh, versions of Marvel and DC superheroes, sort of a lot along the lines of Astro City, if you've read that book. And, and the Skull Digger and Skeleton Boy is also sort of an homage to, um, I want to say, the 1980s sort of dark and gritty anti-hero. Um, Skull Digger has a lot in common with, um, with the Punisher. Uh, he has a lot in common with Batman. And, and maybe, maybe even someone like Rorschach from, from Watchmen. Uh, so what's the book about? Well, um, it, it focuses around Skull Digger's sidekick, Skeleton Boy. And when, when the story begins, um, this boy, it, much like Bruce Wayne in, in Batman, um, witnesses the murder of his parents uh, by, by a mugger. The Skull Digger, who's sort of like this brutal vigilante, swoops in just afterwards and uh, and kills the guy who, who murdered his parents in a very, you know, brutal uh, way. And the little boy witnesses this um, and, in fact, refuses to look away. And um, the, the boy is taken in by the police. And, and there's, there's a police detective, uh, Detective Reese, who is out for the uh the skull digger she 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 uh sees him as a dangerous violent vigilante which he is um but the the police uh agency sort of looks the other way because he takes care of the bad guys and she sort of has this agenda against against him and 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 suggested that um it's personal she was saved by skull digger and they have some sort of relationship that isn't quite unveiled yet um but the but this while in custody, this boy is kidnapped basically by the skull digger, and it's sort of like a a Batman and Robin type situation, but like a little more uh, <laughs> dysfunctional. Um, the skull digger is not uh, well. Is Bruce Wayne stable? I mean, you know, not not so much maybe. This guy's like legitimately kind of like a disturbing vigilante. And he he has his boy like kind of locked in his basement. And he's sort of terrorizing him and like, you know, but the boy also wants vengeance and he wants to become like Skull Digger. So this is a sort of a fascinating character study. The, the characterization in this book is phenomenal, all the characters. Um we're also introduced in this book to a villain called Grim Jim, who um, I want to say it bears a, some similarities to the Joker. He's got um, a disfigured face that, that that you know he's a permanent kind of grin, and and he is out to uh, he escaped from jail and he's out to revenge his old nemesis um, who, who is a, a retired superhero who is now running for public office. Um, so we're introduced to all these different characters and I'll tell you what, the, 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 the book just immediately hooked me. It, it, after the first issue, it went straight to the top of my pile. 
So um, I've been frustrated that 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 you know it still hasn't resumed yet after after the quarantine. So um, you should definitely pick it up while you can. Um, the the first three issues of uh, Skull Digger and Skeleton Boy. Um, this this is, is is turning out to be uh, in my mind every bit as good as Black Hammer. It's probably my favorite so far of the uh, spinoff titles. Sounds very interesting. It reminds me, just uh, based on your description there, of kind of what um, Frank Miller was doing with All-Star Batman and Robin in pushing. Yes, I, I, I could definitely see the comparison where Batman's sort of like, this guy is a little unstable. Should he yeah. really be, you know, <laughs> with this kid, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to turn to our main conversation today, and we're joined for that conversation by J.D. Flynn. Uh, J.D. Flynn is the editor-in-chief of Catholic News Agency. He's worked for the Catholic Diocese of Lincoln and Archdiocese of Denver. He has a licentiate in canon law from the Catholic University of America and a master's in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville, so he is clearly slumming it to hang out with us here today. Uh, but J.D., welcome to God and Comics. Oh, thanks a lot. No, I, I thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. And listen, uh, Episcopalians and former Episcopalians have always gone to the highest falutin schools, so I don't think that I'm uh, I'm slumming it at all. On the contrary, <laughs> you guys are kind of happy. <laughs> well, we're, we're glad you're here. Um, so I'm going to ask you in a second a couple of other things, but let, let's just start can you tell us a little bit about Catholic News Agency, what that is, what, what it does? Yeah, sure. So Catholic News Agency is, uh, is the, the news uh, service that I run. We're um, an, an international agency um, that covers uh, the Catholic Church um, and the, the world affairs of politics um, or culture, but from a perspective of faith. So um, our journalists in, uh, in all of our bureaus are are practicing Catholics, and so our goal is um, is to uh, to use the tools of journalism to um, bring to light the truth. And part of our sort of central understanding of the truth is that we take as true, you know, as sort of presuppositions of truth, the the teachings of the church. So um, all journalists have a sort of set of underlying presuppositions that they believe or hold to be true, and ours are the teachings of the Catholic Church. But that doesn't mean we sort of do that. What we do is sort of apologetics or um, PR for the church or anything like that. Our goal is to do real and serious journalism uh, from the perspective of our faith and um, in light of the, 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 the teachings of the church. Yeah. So we've got journalists in, um, in Colorado, journalists in Washington, D.C., journalists in uh, Rome and London, and then we're part of a network of news agencies um, with journalists all around the world, and so we're able to tap into resources from sort of our partner news agencies as well. I, I get a lot out of, of CNA, and it's, it's very much what you describe. You know, it's obviously coming from a Catholic perspective and foundation, and yet it, it, it is, it's, it's serious news, right? Like, this is, it's not just like fluff pieces or, you know, whatever. It's, this is like, you know, we've investigated these stories, and we're going to, you know, carefully relay to you the facts of them. And boy, have there been a lot of things going on in the world <laughs> to relay. Yeah, even... Even today, there even today there have been a lot of things going on, but it's been it's been a crazy, crazy couple of years, and of course for all of us it's been a really crazy couple of months. So we've been we've been busy at our desks to be sure. 
it, does EWTN have anything to do with it, or is it is it? Yeah. So so CNA um, CNA was. Um, uh, founded as part of the Aussie Prensa Group, so our, the largest news agency in our kind of consortium, the Aussie Group, is Aussie Prensa, which is a very large um, Spanish language news agency. And then we have uh, Aussie Digital in Portuguese, CNA Deutsch in German, CNA Aci Stampa in Italian, and then um, Aussie Africa, which is our African news partner. And that whole group, our group of news agencies, became a part of EWTN just a few years ago. So now we're a part of the, of the EWTN news news network. Okay. Do they do they have anything directly to do with it though? Do like does like Raymond Arroyo come down to your house and like? No, I've never met Raymond Arroyo actually. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. So we're a part of. I mean, at, the, at this point, uh, because the Aussie Group was was essentially acquired by EWTN, where um, our new service is is um, is a full sort of scale branch of of EWTN. But um, but EWTN is such a huge organization. With, uh, with so many things going on that there are lots of people who are like really well known on EWTN who I haven't haven't met or have just like met in passing or things like that because it's such a such I mean just a, the global footprint of EWTN is gigantic yeah okay yeah well so uh, one of the questions that I always ask whenever we have a guest on for the first time is uh, what is your what has been your experience with comics uh, some people they have lots of experience. Some people they have no experience at all. So, uh, what what has been your experience with comics or comic characters in in culture? I don't have a lot of experience with comics. In fact, I was just saying to you guys, I feel feel badly about that. But one of my best friends, I, I wish you were having him on, is a huge comic book guy. I mean, the guy has you know um, storage units and storage units full of comics. He uh, he collected comics. Um, with his dad as a kid, and then um, and then his dad died, and um, and so comics became like through his teen years and even into adulthood something that he loves for their own sake, but also just this thing that sort of is a bridge of continuity between uh, between him and his dad. So um, yeah, so my good friend Tim is a huge huge comic book guy, and you know half the time I don't even know what the hell he's talking about, but I know that it, it's a, it's very important to him. And then I like Batman a lot. Not, not I really don't like Christopher Nolan Batman, but I otherwise like Batman <laughs> a lot. Mm. Um, so um, for whatever that's worth. And then you know whenever when when graphic novels were big, I like tried to get into graphic novels because everybody was doing that, and I read Mouse and thought it was cool. But, um, but I suppose that's about the limitation of that too. Did did you uh, were you, were you a, a fan of the uh, Michael Keaton Batman films? Uh, from yeah. back in the day, yeah, yeah. I mean, I honestly think, and I and I get a lot of flack for this, but I honestly think that the best Batman is the animated Batman. That Batman, the animated series, ah, is sort sure. of peak yeah. Batman. Um, but uh, but yeah, M- Michael Keaton's a good Batman. Yeah, Kevin Conroy <laughs> is is my Batman as well. Uh, nice. But... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I would can, agree with that. Yeah, I, I can get behind that statement for oh, sure. Awesome. I could support it as well. Yes. Oh, cool. So Are you <laughs> Michael Keaton? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I re, the reason I mentioned the Michael Keaton thing is because the news this week that Michael Keaton is going to actually appear as Batman again in uh, some upcoming uh, DC DC films. At least one, maybe several. Did you guys hear Whoa, that? Or, I mean, really? One. I had not seen it. I had heard no. that, but it, was there any details released yeah. about like where? So the 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 the, the first one is, is it going to be Batman Beyond? Please tell me he's uh, Bruce Wayne. And Batman <laughs> Beyond. So cool. Maybe I don't know. So the, what the, what we know so far is that it looks like he's going to be in the Flash 
film um, as a oh, Batman, oh, like because Flash, you could see he's going to be kind of moving in and out of universes in of the way course. Flash does. Yeah. So very easy for it to go. Oh, hey, here's the universe where all of this. Um, but basically, what that what that suggests is that the Michael Keaton movies are going to become canon. So interesting. <laughs> at least, yeah, at least good. in in some parallel world, right, to, right. which DC is good at. Right. That'll be very cool. Indeed. That's exciting. Um, so, uh, yeah, that is. I, um, I thought of one other comic thing. I don't know. I mean, um, but I did really like the novel Cavalier and Clay. Oh, oh yeah. Just, I was just sort of tenuously at this point grasping for any comic connection that I could find. But I did think that was a good book. <laughs> that so is, I, I don't that's know. That's one of my I, favorite I, novels. Michael Chabon is one of my favorite novelists. So, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And was that like, among comic book nerds, was that book like, um, hotly contested in terms of its depiction of the culture or anything like that, or was it sort of universally, universally accepted among comic book nerds? I imagine comic book nerds to hotly contest all things. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know what? I, I haven't I haven't heard anyone uh, you know criticize it. I, I think it's been pretty celebrated. In, in, in fact, Michael Chabon went on to to write a number of comic books. They produced like comic book. Uh, series of the escapist uh, which is you know their character yeah. in, in cavalier and clay um so i know i think he was pretty the, the the book was pretty you know well regarded among comic book fans at least this comic book fan and, and father jonathan seems to agree with me um it i was, have never read it oh well, you you good. you definitely should it's it's definitely in my top uh you know novels in recent years for sure yeah, totally. Father Matt, I think you're the one who actually told me about that book originally. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Wow. If I'm not mistaken, I there could be go. wrong. It's been, gosh, it's probably been a decade since I read it. But um, Well, I tell everybody about it. When, when someone's like, hey, recommend a novel, that's usually, you know, close to the top. Mm-hmm. Father Matt, have you read um, Yiddish Police Fans Union? I did, yeah. And that's, I, I didn't like it quite as much as Cavalier and Clay, but it was still a, a pretty fascinating book. I was going to say, for me, it's my favorite Michael Shaven novel. Oh, is it really? I don't, sort of, I don't have the pre, pre-existing comic thing, probably, which helped it. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe the, 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 you know, the subject matter of Cavalier and Clay kind of put it over for me. But, I mean, the Yiddish Policemen's Union was also... Very good. Yeah. Cool. Very smart idea for a book. Well, now I know when we do, when yeah, we do totally. our Michael Shaban episode, we'll have to have JD back on. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, That'd be an interesting topic. Indeed. Uh, so but we want to talk today a little bit about, um, about disability um, and uh, eventually talk a little bit about what that has meant in comics. Um, and, uh, JD, you, you and I, um, I mean, we're both able-bodied people, but, uh, but you and I do share an experience in that we both are parents of, uh, children with, with special needs. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it is. Yeah. But I have, uh, I have two, I have three children and, uh, and two of them have Down syndrome. My son, Max, and my daughter, Pia, both have Down syndrome. Yeah, I'll, so I'll just say, I mean, you know, longtime listeners of the show are aware, but just in case somebody's uh, dropping in for the first time. Uh, so, yeah, I also have uh, two children, um, two boys who are who are on the autism spectrum, on kind of the heavy end of the autism spectrum. 
So yeah, so so th that explains me to anybody who's listening for the first time. Uh, although it doesn't really explain how a Catholic priest has children, but I'll, I'll let you guys Google that one. <laughs> and so, what does that mean <laughs> when you say on the heavy end of the archers and strike? What does that mean? So, um, how I, does that manifest? I say that because um, people have different. Uh, experiences with autism and I think you know a lot of people when you say autism what they what they expect is like uh, like Rain Man basically um, that they've got that sort of idea in their heads um, and my kids are um, they're mostly nonverbal so they have very little language at all um, and need just they just need a tremendous amount of help right i mean they you know they can't really like i have to help them brush their teeth and dress themselves and all this kind of stuff uh and they're my kids are eight and 12 it's not like they're like you know little um so that's that's usually i usually say severe end or heavy end just for that reason now there are there are people out there who are who have have more severe version of autism than my kids do I had one friend who used to her her kid was born about the same time as mine, and she used to refer to it as platinum autistic, and I always like that. So sometimes <laughs> I say that. <laughs> yeah, you know, we a lot of times people ask us. I, I, I feel bad that I'm that I ask because I I want to understand, but I know it's a tricky question to ask. But a lot of people ask us like, oh, do your kids have? Oh, a mild form of Down syndrome or a more severe form of Down syndrome. And with Down syndrome, there's only one kind. I mean, you know, you have it or you don't. But it manifests in so many different ways, and it's hard to sort of know how to talk about those gradations, especially when you get um, – my son Max has a lot – just has a lot of challenges that my daughter Pia doesn't have. And so you, and so when you get sort of out of the realm of the sort of um, positively expected stereotype, it becomes trickier to sort of explain which I think it sounds like it's your experience too. But yeah, no, I, totally. And it, you know, it's, it's always, a, it's always a challenge. It's funny because, you know, having the kids that I do, um, especially when I was in, in doing more pastoral ministry, um, you would get a lot of like people, there are a lot of people in the world who have kids who have different kinds of needs that are all over the spectrum. Yeah. My situation is strange enough that people in general, it's hard to like relate to if, if you haven't been in it. Um, but what I find, what I would find is that like people who also had kids who had something and it didn't almost didn't matter what it was, would have, would feel some sort of identification like, oh, I get your kid. And, and of course, like I don't actually get their kids because I don't know their kids, but I, but yeah. I get where they're coming from that it's like, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to explain and it's hard to explain in a way that is both giving a full picture of how big the problems are and challenges are and how difficult it is, but that also isn't diminishing them or their personhood or making it seem like your life is just like some disastrous, you know, experience, right? Like, cause it's not like, yeah. It's, you know, it's hard to say because I'll say like, oh, man, my kids kept me up all night and, and typical parents are like, oh, yeah, that happens with my kids, too. And I'm like, it's not exactly the same. But at the right. same time, you know, I also don't want people to be like, oh, those, that poor guy with his poor children. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I also I, I, I struggle, too, because I when people try to empathize, um, which I, I appreciate that they're doing, I, I think you're right when you're sort of in the 
disability dad club, so to speak, you have a certain understanding just of uh, just of sort of what that life is like, even without knowing the particulars and sort of what being having to be adaptive is and, and things like that. And when other people try to empathize, I want to be grateful for that. But at the same time, I sort of struggle because I don't want to sort of milit- I don't want to become sort of um, militant about saying, no, our life, you don't understand our life. You know, there's no value to that when people are trying to empathize. But it's tricky because because um, it is a unique experience, I think, to parent uh, disabled kids. Yeah. Um, so can I ask you a question, J.D., just out of curiosity, because I'd like to know more about this. Are your kids, um, were they twins or are they uh, independent births? And how common is that for uh, parents to have uh, two children with Down syndrome? Great question. Um, I, I, only, I know one other family who has two children with Down syndrome, and their situation is the same as ours, which is that our kids are adopted. So, um, so our son, Max, um, who was eight, uh, we met like 10 days after he was born and adopted him, you know, took him home the day after that or something like that. And our daughter, Pia, we met on the day she was born and, uh, and she came home with us a day or two after that. Uh, so they're both adopted. So they're not biologically related. And it's funny because our daughter, Pia is, um, is ethnically Vietnamese. She was born in, in the U S but she's ethnically Vietnamese and she looks Vietnamese to me. Um, but it's amazing how many people will ask when they're together if they're twins, you know, which which is funny because mm-hmm. my son Max is um, is, uh, is 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 pale and blonde and uh, has these big blue eyes, and then he has this Asian sister who people think is his twin, which is sort of a <laughs> weird phenomenon. But they're uh, they're fifty one weeks apart; they're they're almost a year apart. And oh. um, just I like to clarify, we didn't sort of set out to adopt kids with Down syndrome. We we're not um, we're not virtuous in that way. Um, they're just, we, uh, you know, didn't have kids for a long time and we pursued adoption and they're just the kids that, that came into our life. Mm-hmm. So. What a blessing for those kids. For us too. Yeah. Our whole family's been blessed for sure. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about, uh, what, what disability is or what's meant by that. Um, I'm not even sure, you know, it was occurring to me as we were preparing for this. I don't even know if that's like if that's even the nomenclature that the preferred nomenclature these days, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I don't either. I think so because the ADA, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act shapes so many things. So that probably has kept the term in vogue, but it's hard to, can be hard to keep track sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes I don't know about you, but sometimes I get in trouble with the Down syndrome community because I'll do something very publicly and I'll use the wrong words and then I'll get all these notes that I, well, so, but let's, for the sake of at least for the sake of our program today, let's give it some kind of, of definition. So what, what, what do we mean when we say disability? It, it seems to me that a disability, probably one way to think about it is that it's, um, it's an impairment of some kind, whether that's a physical impairment or an intellectual impairment or, or maybe even an emotional impairment. I don't, I don't exactly know, but an impairment of some kind that it impedes sort of normal or tip, you know, what's typically expected for, for the ordinary functions of, of life. Does that seem fair? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, and so like there's a wide range um, that would fall within that, right? Um, I mean, if you wanted to take the most expansive definition possible, you know, there's a sense in which, like, I know, you know, I'm sitting here wearing glasses. I noticed that Father Matt is wearing glasses. Like, that is, a, right, is a kind of disability. Now, it's, you know, it's a very, very common one that doesn't require a lot of 
work <laughs> to, yeah. to adjust to life with. But, um, but you, you, you can take it from that being maybe like the furthest, you know, like the sort of furthest extreme in one direction all the way to, you know, there are people who, um, have a lot of struggles, um, because of various, uh, conditions physically or, uh, or mentally, um, that, um, make it very difficult for them to do everyday tasks. I, I was, um, heartened this past week, um, because I think, you know, I think this is actually a very important thing for, for us as Christians to be thinking about, to be talking about, um, because there is quite a lot of emphasis on it, um, in, in scripture, you know, um, Jesus spends a lot of time with people who, who are, um, uh, disabled in one way or another. Um, but I was, I was heartened this week at a piece of news, um, that came out from the Vatican, um, in relation to, um, uh, the sacraments and how they're, they're the, the availability of sacraments to, to, uh, people with, with disabilities. Um, JD, do you know much about that story? Would you be able to say anything about it? Yeah, so so last week um, came out of the of the Holy See um, an updated version of a document called the General Directory for Catechesis, and the, that document is exactly what it says. It's a guide for people who teach the faith, and um, and it's both sort of topical. It talks about sort of how to convey the faith on various topics, but it's also methodological, um, the right sort of the right approach to to conveying the faith in various circumstances. And you know, it's a tricky document because it's intended to be universal, and so it's a it's a value everywhere, but it's some, to some degree of limited scope everywhere because catechesis, I think, depends so much on the circumstances of time and place. But it does it does emphasize in a strong way something that the U.S. bishops have already emphasized. I think, I think I, I, I'm not saying that the U.S. church has implemented well, but the U.S. bishops have already emphasized, which is that um, people who, who are disabled, and I think it's sort of focused at that point on people with... Um, with intellectual disabilities or psychological disabilities, developmental disabilities, people who are disabled in those ways, first of all, have the right to be formed in the faith, um, have a vocation, a call by God um, to some unique particularity, some some particular expression of discipleship, and um, and have the right to the sacramental life. Um, and so, you know, to the degree to which they can participate in it. Now, not everyone has a right to all sacraments, um, and you know, if you think that's true, just tell someone you want to marry them and they don't want to marry you. Um, you know, you can't, you, you can't, you can't have every sacrament you want all the time. Um, but, um, but what the church has said is that the sacraments of initiation, especially, uh, you know, baptism and, and confirmation and Eucharist, um, shouldn't be, uh, held back from people just because they lack the kind of understanding of them that, that, that most of us would be expected to have about, about the Eucharist, say, or about confirmation. Um, and, and so it, I think that's great. I mean, so there's a call there for, for an affirmation of dignity and its relation, human dignity and its relationship to the sacraments, and then a call there for adaptive formation, adaptive catechesis, and I think especially a recognition of that thing that, uh, that I first mentioned, which is that disabled people have a call by God to some particular thing is really important because um, we can often, I think, te- tend to think of disabled people as sort of the... Um, uh, the recipients of our charity, but not to think of their own lives as having some you know, particular way in which God has called them to live the Christian life. Um, Father Kyle and, and Father Matt, I don't know if or what the equivalent sort of Anglican teaching or statement would be on that that kind of thing, but 
What, what would you guys say, just in general, do you, do you have a sense of, of, of what Christian teaching uh, yields for us when we start thinking about disability and, and people with dis- disabilities? Well, I don't know that I would say that there's any particular teaching in the Episcopal Church that I'm aware of, at least, that um, that speaks in such a manner as, as what you all just brought forward. Although I would say that within Episcopalianism, the um, blanket statement that's found on every Episcopal sign, which says all are welcome and has kind of been the overriding um, the overriding uh, statement of belief on a certain level for Episcopal churches um, includes those with disability for sure. I mean, I don't think that you would find anybody in our denomination in any way, shape or form um, finding reasons to exclude the disabled from the life of the church and would see uh, having disabled people in the church as a as a very positive thing. So I don't know, Father Matt, if you know of something more specific than that. but Well, um, there may have been um, statements released by General Convention and things like that addressing the um, addressing people with disabilities in particular. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the oft-quoted um, parts of our baptismal covenant is to respect the, the human dignity, something that's also um, the Episcopal Church has in common with this uh, document from the Vatican, that we, we really do want to respect the, the human dignity of all people, um, regardless of, of, of their... Um, their uh, you know, mental capacity or, or um, you know, physical condition or, or whatever that might be. Um, I'd also say that I think there's a strong emphasis in the Episcopal Church on um, all the baptized being admitted to, to Holy Communion. Um, and that may, that's, that's probably more recent. These days, um, it's not uncommon for me to uh, commune even small children um, who do not yet have um, the ability to uh, give an intellectual account of their faith. Um, and, and it's not unusual either for me to uh, serve communion to uh, individuals who uh, have mental Handicap that, that, you know, they're always going to sort of be at the intellectual capacity of children. They might not be able to articulate a, 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 um, a faith in that respect, but they're baptized members of the body of Christ and, and they're, they're welcome um, to the Lord's table. Yeah, I, I think actually in, in that respect, um, and this is one of the things that I appreciated about what I'd read about um, what the Vatican was saying, that uh, the idea that the sacraments are not, you know, that the sacraments are ultimately about God's gift of himself to us and not about our ability to, I don't know what, somehow, uh, you know, earn God's favor, right? And so that, like, but that's a that's a tough nut to crack because there are a lot of people that, that tend to think of it that way. And and so, you know, people will say like, well, you know, are your kids really prepared to receive communion? Because they can't, you know, they can't articulate it in the same way that, that somebody else might. 
And I'll say, well, no, you know, not in the sense you're thinking, I guess, but they weren't prepared for baptism in that sense either, right? Like, right. <laughs> you know, is it, is, uh-huh. it, it's not yeah. something they're doing. It's something that, that uh, Christ is right. doing. That's right. That's right. Preach it, as they say. <laughs> I, I would say, you know, I hang out with a lot of clerics, and I would say, Probably only half the clerics I know can give an intellectual account of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, I, in a certain way, there's something that the, the participation of the disabled in the sacramental life reminds all of us, and it's this. Um, you know, the the, um, the Latin word for being wounded or something who probably come close to being disabled is, is to have a fullness. And from that, we get vulnerability. A vulnerability is a weakness or a woundedness. And, um, and that vulnerability, our, we, our, our weakness and our woundedness is the locus of our, of our most intimate encounter with Christ, right? So, I mean, you know, where, we, where Christ encounters us, we, we encounter Christ in his wounds and he encounters us in the wound of sin, um, which he transforms. And in, in a certain way, the participation of the disabled in, in the sacramental economy, I think, helped to remind all of us that we approach the sacraments wounded and, um, and, and that perhaps we're better at hiding our wounds, but the most profound wounds are the wounds of sin, not the wounds of our minds or the wounds of our bodies. And those are the things that you know, we ought not hide from ourselves or from, from Christ in the same way that the disabled often can't hide their own. Boy, you, you hit there right on something that is, is on the edge of something I was going to actually throw up and see what you guys thought. Because one, one of the things... Oh man, sorry. No, 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 no. You No, this, that's perfect. That's perfect. Um, because um, one of the, the things that I've been kind of thinking about in relation to this lately is if you can kind of think of, um, and I, I, it's, it's come into my mind because of a lot of the conversation that's been happening around uh, depictions of Christ, you know, that we've been thinking a lot about racial depictions of Christ, for instance, in, in our society recently. Um, but like, if you can think of Christ as a disabled individual in some ways and i by by that i don't mean that you know we we uh, put him in a wheelchair on a on a statue or something but um but (laughs) but more along the lines of like it's actually that in a sense he is accepting disability and through that uh is is exercising the power by which we are saved right like he he self empties as as it says in philippians and and he accepts this the wounds of the cross and even in the resurrection right he still has the wounds but they are wounds that have been transformed um and i think most of the time i think we focus on that solely in relation to how that how that relates to sin um, and how that relates to spiritual wounds. And I think that's fine to a certain extent, right? Like that's, that's important. We do need to, we do need to have that focus, but I wonder if sometimes we don't like, we get so hyper-focused on that, that we actually lose the physical reality of just, you know, just how powerful that is, uh, what he's doing physically. No, I think you're, you're onto something there. I mean, the example that comes to me from scripture and it's only been in, you know, the recent last five years or so that this has really come clear to me. When Jesus goes around healing lepers, touching lepers, you know, there's a, um, there's a real sense in which he's associating with them, being marked as one of them, 
right? Because under the Mosaic law, to touch a leper, to be within the you know, closer proximity of a, of a leper is to become leprous yourself. And, um, and there's a real deep sense of his identifying with us in our brokenness, um, not merely in our sinfulness, in a, um, in a kind of the usual way we would think of that, right? But actually identifying with us in the brokenness of sin, in, in our disabilities, to use that word. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That's a good way of putting that, too. It's, you know, one of the things that I struggle with the w- in terms of the way that, that other Christians understand um, my children's uh, disabilities, you know, because I've had people before who, um, like, I've had experiences where people really wanted to, like, pray it away, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and like, I, and I find that very disconcerting. And I know that, that for the most part, those folks mean well. But like my children being autistic is not, it's not a disease, you know, like it's, (laughs) it's the reality of who they are. Like, I don't know who they would be if they weren't autistic. Um, And so I do, you know, I do appreciate prayers for them to thrive and I appreciate prayers for them to uh, be able to live as full a life as possible uh, and to engage with the world and prayers for the world to be able to to be open and engage with them and the church for that matter to be able to open and engage with them because uh, that's quite frankly yeah. very difficult for them to even be in, in a church but but I, I i don't pray for them to be quote unquote healed yeah i i, I often pray for my children to be um I, I have to be sure pray for my children to be free from particular challenges or heal from particular challenges. I, I, gosh, I wish my son didn't struggle so much with so many sensory things because it's, it's so, I watch how, how terrifying ordinary things are for him, you know. Um, uh, I, I wish my daughter had better, you know, cardiac health. She's had a ton of heart problems. But, yeah, to think, um, it, could, my, would my, could my daughter be my daughter? Could my son be my son apart from Down syndrome trisomy 21? I, I don't. I don't think so. I, I don't know what they'll be like in heaven. I, I really don't. I hope they get to heaven. I hope I do too. We can find out. Um, but there's something about who they are that's tied in because all of us are physical. And so there's something about who they are that's tied in with this reality of their, of their physical and, and, and intellectual lives. Let's, let's, uh, uh, now that we've we've had that that deep conversation and we've gotten all of that focus, let's talk about uh, comics. <laughs> um, so, how um, and and uh, you know I don't know if uh, if you guys have some specific examples in mind. I, I know I've, I've have a couple, but how does comics treat disability, um, and how does that? How does that line up with what we've been talking about in terms of a Christian understanding of it? Well, I, I mean, how, how do comics treat disability? Um, well, I, I'd say probably variously. I mean, um, we, we could all we could we could all probably rattle off some some uh, characters in comic books that have uh, physical disabilities. You know. Um, like Professor X, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's in a in a wheelchair. Um, Daredevil, he's blind. 
and and I, I think one of the one of the things that that comic books have been good at has been to show that um, even though someone uh, has this particular disability, uh, they could still be heroic. They they could they could still contribute something very meaningful to society. Um, I mean, you know, uh, Professor X is basically, um, you know, the 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 leader of this, you know, kind of civil rights movement uh, for 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 mutants in, in Marvel comic books. If if you don't know who Professor Xavier Professor X is, he's the he's the teacher of the X Men. He's the sort of the the organizing uh, mind behind the the group, the X Men. Um, Daredevil is, uh, in, in some ways, his disability is his power. <laughs> you know, he's 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 blind, but because he's blind, he has this heightened sense of uh, hearing and 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 sort of uh, radar. You know, kind of like a bat. <laughs> um, which uh, you know, and that's the only power he has besides his athleticism and his you know his 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 uh his just his you know martial arts training um so i, I think it shows in that respect it give it, it gives representation and i think dignity to people with disabilities one character that i thought of immediately another one was um was the character moon knight who is a lesser known uh figure in, in, in Marvel Comics, but uh, one that, that um, is, is pretty fascinating because Moon Knight is, along with being a hero, he's also someone who struggles pretty profoundly with uh, mental uh, illness. He has um, DID or dissociative identity disorder. He has um, multiple personalities. He ha suffers from hallucination and sort of Sometimes it's not really clear, um, you know, if what he's perceiving is actually reality or it's uh, a delusion of some kind. That that was played up to great effect recently in in, in, in Moon Knight's and uh, Jeff Lemire's run on, on Moon Knight. Bendis uh, did an excellent uh, run on Moon Knight that that took a look at at his uh, his his multiple personalities and things like that. Um, um, and that mental illness is, is kind of, uh, in his case, has put him on the fringe of the Marvel Universe. Um, he's sort of a distrusted character. I mean, one of the few people that um, see good in Moon Knight is Spider-Man, who works alongside Moon Knight from time to time, and, and, and the Punisher. But the Punisher is probably more disturbed than Moon Knight is. Um, so... <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and I'm sure you guys, we, we could continue to talk about like um, this. But I think representation of, of characters with disabilities uh, matters. And, and, and you read a book, uh, a comic book, and you say, oh, look, um, here's a hero that suffers with what I suffer with or, or um, suffers with what my neighbor suffers with. And, and yet... He, you know, has a meaningful uh, place in, in, in the world. Uh, I think that's important. 
Father. Yeah, to kind of back up to to kind of back up on some things that you were saying, Matt, and forgive me if I'm repeating something you said, but um, you know, with regard to the X Men, that term we used earlier uh, when we were discussing whether disabled is the appropriate term or differently abled, as we've sometimes you know heard used. I think the X Men are a portrayal of a group of people as a whole who are differently abled, and yet how the culture tends to fear the differently abled, right? That's the, I think one of the overriding portrayals of the X-Men is they're seeking to show that they're just like everybody else ultimately, despite the fact that they have different abilities um, than other humans might have. And I know Stan Lee wrote X-Men thinking in large part about the civil rights movement and the differences that uh, existed in that capacity. But I think over time, it probably has taken on a little bit more of a social commentary on folks who are differently abled in that way. Yeah, I mean, when you look at someone like Cyclops, right, he has these powerful energy blasts that come out of his eyes, you know, at all, but at all times, right. <laughs> you know, he has to wear a special visor over his eyes. You know, it, does he have awesome superpowers or is he like profoundly disabled? Well, both. Um, you know, and I think a lot of the mutants could, you know, I mean, Nightcrawler, I mean, you know, obviously he sticks out like a sore thumb in any mm-hmm. crowd. Uh, he's also, you know, he has these extraordinary powers, but he's also very different from everybody else. Uh, I mean, all the, yeah. I think you could say that about. Beast. Yeah, and the and the kind of a the kind of wonderful thing about it all is that they're normal people. I mean, you get in the X Men stories, you get love stories that would just be the same love story that you would have in Spider Man between Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy or Mary Jane, right? But it's right. like Jean Grey and Cyclops or Wolverine and Jean Grey. You've got um, people having real struggles in life, and so the portrayal that's given there is that while they may be differently abled, while they may appear to be different than you and I, they're very much the same human beings as you and I, right? Um, well, exactly. Down at the bottom I, of it all. I, you know, a, a beautiful example of that, I, I think, also is the thing from the Fantastic Four. You know, the Fantastic Four all get these powers from gamma rays, you know, whatever gamma rays are, right? Thank you do. But, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, uh, Reed Richards can stretch and, 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 and Johnny Storm could, could set himself ablaze and Sue could turn invisible, but they all could go back to normal. Uh, Ben Grimm becomes a monster, mm-hmm. and he can't he can't go back to normal. I mean, he also becomes you know incredibly strong, um, but he struggles with that, um, which is in some respects a disability. And he finds uh, he finds love with Alicia Masters, who is uh, who is a sculptor, and and she's blind, and 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 they they both have these this kind of disability but but she you know although she's blind and this is the brilliant thing about it she sees ben Grimm like nobody else can see him right she sees his heart you know and 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 sees the man behind the monster in in, in that respect um so I, I think from the beginning i mean, especially stan lee and jack kirby have have really made a, a profound effort to uh 
to, to talk about the issues of, of surrounding disability and just being different. And, and, and um, you know, part of that was they wanted their characters to be complex and multifaceted. Hmm. That the Alicia Masters, that's that's a great example. Um, the, the, what you just pointed out that, um, that she sees him in a way that that nobody else does, and um, and I I think um, there is something there in terms of um, how we understand ourselves. Um, I'm having trouble figuring out exactly how to articulate this, but I think that. Um, there is a way in which we get wrapped up in thinking of ourselves in relation to our senses, which is, uh-huh. which is natural to a certain degree, right? Because the only way that we know the world is through our senses. Um, and, uh, and yet there is a way in which that can then become, um, debilitating to us in ways that we don't realize that we become so uh wedded to the idea of how i'm taking things in through my hearing through my my seeing and so forth that if i were to lose one of those things i would cease to be me right which i think is a natural you know i mean i think any of us would say that's a natural fear right like i would i I would be afraid to lose my hearing or to lose my vision or whatever it is. Uh, I certainly have seen that before with people as they've gotten older and have, have started yeah. to lose the sensitivity of various various things, lo- lose their ability to function physically in certain ways that it's like it, it really gets at, well, who am I? Um, and yet the yeah. example that you're giving with... with um, uh, with uh, Ben Grimm and his his girlfriend there is is an example that points to the to the the contrary, which is that the reality of who we are is not uh, simply tied into our sensory perception. Yeah, I, I, you know, and I think there's something to be said there, like you said, um, you know, losing part of yourself or, or taking for granted what we do have and then and then how, how traumatic it is to to, to lose that um you know i, I think about this often because I, I i i was born deaf in one ear i only have hearing in one ear um i never thought about myself with the, as, as as having a disability you know i thought it, it's sort of like you know i wear glasses too i don't see too well i have to wear glasses it never was that big of a deal because i don't know any different mm. um and yet, I have a I have a, a colleague who lost hearing in one of his ears, um, you know, midway through life, and it's a huge deal for him. Oh. It, it's you know, it's very traumatic, kind of, you know. And and he talks about it often, you know, like how you know how hard it is to go about his day, you know, not being able to hear in one ear. Um, and, and it made me think about it differently. <laughs> you know, I, I've just sort of, you know, I, I've adapted to that. I've never known any different. But I, I think to, to once you, when you have an ability and, and, and you lose it, um, that, that, that's a very different thing because we, we, we sort of take uh, our ability to function in all these ways for granted sometimes. Mm. I have. A, I really appreciate those thoughts. I especially am really interested in your thing. I'm going to look them up. 
I haven't thought about Superman. I don't know if talking about Superman is too cliche. No. Uh, no, no I love Superman. Not very obscure, obviously. One thing that I have, uh, one thing that, that one modern tendency in, uh, among disability sort of advocates is, uh, is, is a desire to, um, to uh, uh, portray the lives of disabled people as not being all that different from the lives of typically developing people. And often that leads to um, sort of advocacy for what I call, for, for a kind of faux normalcy, um, for protecting normalcy. And, and I see this with, in the Down Syndrome community a lot. We're going to create um, a, a, a cardboard version of, an, of a normal life of a person of your age, your chronological age, and then you live that, and then we'll say that that's fulfilling and you're the same as everyone else. Um, and I, I think that does a great injustice to um, to disabled people and to their own sort of self-understanding and our own understanding of them. It, um, it, it sort of suggests that the only way of being is being like everybody else. Um, and there's a utilitarianism that kind of runs through there, too. Um, Superman, it, it seems to me, um, part of the Superman story is being other and realizing that there's no real reasonable way for him to be other than to be other and to accept um, his otherness, right? I mean, Clark Kent, Super, Superman can't be happy being Clark Kent. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and it's clear that he's only pretending um, to be Clark Kent. Um, he really can only be, I think, happy by accepting his otherness and then finding the deepest meaning of his identity through, through accepting those things which set him apart or make him different. And, uh, and in some ways, that's a hopeful thing for me to remember about, uh, about my own disabled children and just about the way that we regard disabled people, um, you know, uh, uh, all the time, that pretending not to see differences um, doesn't make them go away. It just makes them um, less, uh, it just makes us less happy, perhaps. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, and you can almost see it with, uh, I mean, Superman is a good example. You can almost see it with, with most um, superhero characters that uh, they, there's some sort of, there's some sort of wound that they are attempting to compensate for that often is what leads them to be a hero, right? So, like, you know, for Batman, it was the sort of trauma of the way that he lost his parents. And um, for Superman, it's that, you know, that experience of being an alien in what is effectively his own world because it's the only world he's ever known. Um, and, you know, but you we can kind of go down the line with that. And those aren't those aren't. N always necessarily physical limitations, um, but they are, uh, you know, it's like those are the things that actually make them become heroic. Um, I, I was going to mention, you know, I think personally, I think the best example of, um, of a portrayal of a disabled person in comics, at least in superhero comics, um, is... Uh, the portrayal of Barbara Gordon as Oracle. Um, oh, yeah. So uh -huh. um, if you're not familiar with this, so Barbara Gordon is Batgirl, right? That's that's where she kind of gets her fame from. Um, and there's a famous uh, Batman story called The Killing Joke. Um, and in that story, the Joker uh, attacks Barbara Gordon and effectively renders her unable to walk after that attack. Um, and so this is, you know, just like what Father Matt was talking about before, when there's that transition of you had something and then you don't, you know, you don't have it anymore. And so that's like, that's a huge deal for her, right? Like that's a huge thing. 
to have to overcome. Here she's been known as this person who could do all of these these things physically, and she is now limited in the sense that she has to be in a wheelchair. Um, and unlike Daredevil, see, I think Daredevil is always like, the, he's always the first example I think of because, okay, he's a blind guy, he's a superhero. And yet, if you think about it, like, very rarely does Daredevil's blindness actually impede him very much. It's, it, it, you know, like, it, it, it's, it's almost like he's gotten, like, he's blind. Okay, he's blind, but he knows where everything is and where everyone is, and he can basically, like, he... <laughs> and he can, he can basically see. You know, like, most, I mean, I think most blind people don't, you know, uh, fight ninjas um, quite effectively <laughs> as he does. But whereas, you know, with the situation with Barbara Gordon, it was like, okay... This is like a total loss. She was Batgirl. Now she can't be Batgirl because she can't do the things that Batgirl is supposed to do. And so what does she do? She becomes Oracle. Well, who is Oracle? it's, It's just her, right? It's her in the chair. But then she becomes the focal point for what becomes the group Birds of Prey. And she starts to use, because she has all of these other skills, right? She's incredibly intelligent. She has this... Um, I forget what the term is for it, but the kind of memory where she can see everything exactly where photographic. She has a yeah. photographic memory. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and just, you know, encyclopedic knowledge almost, you know? And so, and she becomes this incredible like computer expert. And, and so like what I like about that story is it's not, you know, just going back to what JD had just said, it's not her like, Oh, okay. She's in a wheelchair now, but the wheelchair is super powered and it allows her to, you know, <laughs> still be back girl no she has a limitation now and it stinks and it's really difficult for her and yet she becomes a different kind of hero because of it and finds that who she is you know who she thought she was is not who she actually is and i think that's often the challenge with people with disabilities and especially with people with um, either mental disability or, or neurological disability, which that's a whole thing too. Like that, those aren't exactly the same thing, but you know, people for whom, um, the way that they see the world and walk through the world, even if they're physically capable of doing so is, is so different that most of us have trouble relating to them. And the answer that's often given is either some version of, Let's make you as much like everybody else as possible, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, depending on what somebody's capabilities are. Or let's um, let's coddle you and kind of put you off in a corner somewhere where you can just like never reach your potential because we're not going to worry about you because you're never going to be able to, you know, do things that we actually value in our society, like, uh, you know, hold certain types of careers and so forth. Um, and, and in fact, you know, I think the opposite is true. Like what we have, if we were really going to be, if we were really going to be a society that engaged people, um, with disabilities, then what we ought to do is to, to help people rise to their potential in whatever the circumstance is of who they are. Yeah, well said. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
I, I, I'll say one of the things that I admire about my kids is they do not care what you think. <laughs> I mean, they care, you know, like they care about like me and, 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 and my wife, like, you know, how we interact with them and stuff. But like they are not concerned about like social cues and norms yes. of that kind. Uh, which can be a little dicey when they, you know, walk out naked into the middle of the living room when people are, you know, walking by the front of the house or whatever. But it's also like there's something <laughs> there's something very refreshing about that. And it, it, it constantly makes me realize how much time I spend worrying about, you know, whatever societal norm has been placed on me for this is this is who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do uh we would love to know what you guys think we'd certainly love to hear from if we have any uh listeners who um are disabled or differently abled or, or however you you would uh think of that for yourself we'd love to hear from from you about it please hit us up on social media it's it's the latest thing all the kids are into the social media uh, and, uh, you know, and what do the kids love more than the Facebook? <laughs> and by the kids, I mean, you know, my grandparents. Anyway, um, we're on there, facebook.com slash God and Comics. Or uh, if you uh, really don't like context, you can check us out on Twitter. We are on Twitter at God and Comics. Um, but for now, we're going to move on to our final segment, This or That. This or that, this or that, come on everybody, let's this or that. Batman or Iron Man, this or that. Spider-Man or Superman, this or that. Boxes or briefs. <laughs> let's actually begin with a Bible question. Um, we haven't done, I, I don't think we've done too many of these surprisingly, but I'm going to give this to JD to start. The Revised Standard Version of the Bible or the New Revised Standard Version? Um, RSV, RSV. Any reason why? Well, I, um, you know, the, the, you probably know that the Catholic Church liturgically uses an incredibly terrible version, an incredibly terrible translation called the New, New American Bible, which is really just bad. Not in the ordinary. And, um, <laughs> I know, I know, not in the ordinary. But in the, in the, uh, in the ordinary form of Catholicism, we use this terrible translation called the New American Bible, which is really just bad. But I grew up, um, I think I grew up in a, in a little, uh, Presbyterian church in my town and the RSV was our Bible. So most of the scripture in my head is, is in the RSV. All right. I award you a thousand points for that because yes. I am wholeheartedly in agreement with you. Yes. Now, where do you stand on the ESV? Well, um, so personally, I, I use the ESV from time to time, although it's not authorized for use in the Episcopal church. Okay. Um, so I use it in Bible study occasionally um, because it's close to the RSV. Um, it took me a while to track down a good copy of the RSV, which I now have, but not everybody else has one. And a lot of my people have the yeah. ESV. So I use it from time to time, but I still have to say I like the RSV better than I like the ESV. All the way. Father Matt, uh, s'mores or ice cream? This is a good summertime treat one. S'mores or ice cream? You know, s'mores, in theory, always seem like a lot better than they actually are. Uh -huh. Like, you know, I think like, oh, s'mores, it's going to be delicious. But then actually eating them is just a mess, and like the, the marshmallow just squeezes out all over the place, and it's like your hands are sticky, and you're outside, and 
you just rub it on your pants and it's just not ice cream on the other hand is an all-american uh, treat that is always a lot of fun unless you're my kids and you don't know how to lick from the bottom up you know and you just let it drip all over your hand um i so i'm gonna say ice cream okay I'll give you 700 points for that particular one. You did uh, forget to take into account the beard factor when it comes to ice cream, because that is an impossibility for me. You talk about a mess, I end up with just ice cream everywhere. Oh, and that's, that's not, a, not a pleasant look. Yes. All right, on to the next one. Uh, Father Jonathan, thinking of summertime activities, um, flying a kite or uh, bodyboarding? Uh, I don't like to do either of those things. So um, I am going to say staying home and reading a book. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that is a very valuable summertime activity, too. Mm -hmm. um, but because you introduced a third option, I'm sorry. I can only give you 250 oh. points for that one. Uh. <laughs> All right. Uh, J.D., let's give you the next one. Uh, the beach or the lake? Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. I, you know, I'm from New Jersey, and, you know, growing up, going down the shore was the thing to do. Uh, but I moved to Colorado. This is, I feel like you're asking me to choose sides in my own family, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, that means I also have to choose sides against the family, which you never should do. Uh, I, nevertheless, I think, I, I think I'll say the beach. Uh, Father Matt, here's a Bible question for you. Okay. Um, first Peter or second Peter? I'm going to say first Peter. Um, and and the, the only rationale that comes to my mind for that is, is that... Um, Authenticity of, 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 of Peter as the author of the uh, uh, first epistle, Peter, is less in dispute than than the than, than second Peter, which uh, even even back in, in in sort of patristic days was uh, its status wasn't exactly uh, it wasn't wasn't always as confidently asserted. Um, as as, as Petrian authorship, also Second Peter has some some more overlap with with Jude, um, so uh, I guess you'd say maybe First Peter's a little more unique, um, but I mean both Holy Scripture, both both a worthwhile text. All right, very very good answer, and very well thought out. I'll give you a thousand points for that. All right. Uh, last one goes to Father Jonathan. I'm giving you this one knowing full well that you were a vegetarian for a long time. Um, but here's your choice of a summertime barbecue food, hot dogs or hamburgers. I was, I was in fact, a vegetarian for, uh, for a very long time, but I am not anymore. And I, and I live in Texas, for crying out loud, like... Right. They practically hand you meat as you cross the border. Um, <laughs> so, um, hamburgers or hot dogs on a barbecue? Um, I'm going to, I mean, I would go with hamburgers. Um, 
that's a tough choice. I do like me a, a you know a, a good hot dog uh, off of the grill, um, but uh, the, nothing quite beats uh, just a really really good mouth watering, juicy uh, burger. Um, plus, I I have never in my life ate a hot dog and felt good about it later. JD is our winner today with uh, 2,200 points. Guys, thank you so much. Do you, do you always let the guests win? Uh, no. Not always. No, ask Esau. <laughs> ask Esau Macaulay. We, we, gave it, we gave the victory to his son because his son came in and, play, and just did like one question and then left. And he <laughs> argued with us for 15 minutes afterwards about that. He was so oh, angry man. that his son won and he didn't. <laughs> Well, he did the, the same thing the first time it was on the yeah. show. Yeah, that's right. I'm not going to argue because I feel great. I'm going to feel great all day. I'm Absolutely. Gonna and, and congratulations. You're, you know, uh, as a prize, uh, we like to give out something. And so we're going to give you uh, Crushing Despair. That's... <laughs> oh, back to my ordinary ways. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, but it has the God in Comics logo on it. So at least it's got that. Oh, fair. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what you want is branded despair. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. It's the American way. Um, right, exactly. That's right. So, but anyway, J.D., thank you so much for being on the show today. Do you do you want to plug anything before we go, or is there anything else you wanted to shout out to? Or? Well, listeners listeners can um, check out our work at CatholicNewsAgency.com. Um, I have, uh, I'm on two podcasts uh, CNA um, Newsroom and CNA Editor's Desk, and you can get those wherever fine podcasts are found and probably uh, wherever this show is found too. And, uh, and so um, I, uh, I'll plug those things, CNA Editor's Desk, CNA Newsroom, and CatholicNewsAgency.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this, is, this has been a joy. Um, and uh, just you know, sit there uncomfortably for a few more seconds while we, while we close out the show here. Uh, you can uh, find out more about the show or listen to it again on our website, which is godandcomics.com. So definitely go over there and check it out. Uh, you can also find our podcast and subscribe to it in a number of locations, including on iTunes. And if you happen to be uh, checking us out on iTunes, we would love it if you'd give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people to find the show. Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right now, is by Father Paul Wheatley, who has claimed inexplicably for years that he was the inspiration for the song, When Doves Cry. Until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michigan. I'm Father Matt Strummer. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. And we'll see ya.